from the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. If you have like this great relationship, this mentorship type relationship with your teacher, and you know they're invested in you and your progress, and you feel invested in them and you want to do well and show them how well you can do, then you don't have to worry. Welcome back to Circle of Willis. I'm your host, Jim Cohn, and I'm joined once again by our producer, Sage Tangway. Hello. Well, it sounds like we're talking about emotions today and how they affect the process of teaching and learning. What can you tell us about our guest, Sarah Rose Cavanaugh? Sarah's a psychologist and professor. She's a senior associate director for teaching and learning at Simmons University, and she teaches affective science and mental health. Her research is sort of at the intersection of emotion, motivation, and learning. And to that end, she's really thought more deeply than most people you're going to find anywhere about the role of emotion in the learning and teaching process. And she's thought deeply enough about it and researched the, the, the supporting scientific literature uh, underlying it that she can come up with some really good and important recommendations, and she makes those. Now, she's also a huge presence on social media and in the, the sort of popular literature for psychology where she has books on teaching called The Spark of Learning, a book about modern technology and communication called Hive Mind, and a new book coming out called Mind Over Monsters about supporting your mental health. So she's fascinating to me because she does a lot of different things, but she's really passionate about something that I'm also passionate about, which is getting the science out of the ivory tower, out of the little vaults of journal articles, finding what's really actionable about that science, and then teaching people about how they can use it. Boiled down, what she's really come to understand better than most is how the emotional communication of a teacher really does, in fact, affect learning and learning potential. Yeah, that concept totally makes sense to me. It's really fun and a lot easier to learn something from a teacher who is engaged with their subject on every level. Well, let's take a listen. Are you from Boston? I'm from Massachusetts, but I'm out west. From out out west. west? Yeah, but then I did my undergrad at BU and my grad at Tufts and my postdoc at Tufts, and then I went so back to Worcester. So you're a Boston or <laughs> yep. Worcester or yep. whatever. I don't know. what the, the names around here, I can't understand any of them. Yeah. Because they don't ever sound the way they're spelled. Yeah, Worcester. Worcester. Technically, it's Worcester. It's Worcester. Worcester. We <laughs> <laughs> want the true accent. And the other thing that happens every time I come to Boston is that someone starts talking in that really thick Boston mm-hmm. accent. And I can't believe it's real because <laughs> it's so distinctive. Yeah. I got made fun of at BU a lot. And so I've tried to control my accent over the years because I Really? Went, Why'd yeah. you get made made fun of? Because you're at, wait, at BU you got made yeah. fun of? But you're well, from, but I they're... know. That's what I said. But, but, so we're in Boston. So wait a second. <laughs> I can't detect an accent. I know. I tried to get rid of it. What does it sound like when, when you're not hiding it? Can you still, can you do it anymore? Or did you train uh, it out? If I get really tired or drunk, you hear it. 
Really? Yeah. Shoot, I didn't bring any drink <laughs> at all. Although I, I'm, sometimes it slips out when I'm teaching too. Like if I'm, I don't know, trying to do too much cognitive control or something, I'll say something like semesta. 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 What semesta is it? Yep. And the students laugh even though they all have the accent because <laughs> they're pretty local. But they like catching me. <laughs> I, laugh. I laugh too. But it's not a, it's not a demeaning laugh. Yeah. It's a, like a, wow, I love that. Yeah. So what's your background? Were you, were you, were your, your folks professors? What, what, what's the story there? Uh, my mom was a junior high school teacher. Uh-huh. And my dad worked in uh, a home for boys. Wow. So they were both sort of... Educator. Educator, yeah. professional types. Yeah. Right? My dad's a poet. That's great. Yeah. You went to undergrad at BU. What'd you study? Psychology and women's studies. Psychology and women's studies? Yeah. And, and did you go straight into grad school from... No, I applied to grad schools, uh, but only local ones because I didn't want to leave and was rejected everywhere. So then I worked for two years. I worked in an adolescent group home for a little while. And then I worked at UMass Medical School as a research coordinator and then reapplied to grad school. And got uh -huh. And where'd time. you get in? Tufts. Tufts. Yep. Good school. Excellent school. Yeah. yeah. Good people. So you, so you got your PhD in what? Uh, experimental psychology. Did you know what you were going to do? What was what was your plan? I wanted to work in a small liberal arts college. That was the plan. <laughs> and teach? Yep. So this is fascinating to me because it seems like a little bit of a rejection of the standard aspirational goal mm -hmm. of like R. I mean, especially if you think about Tufts. Tufts is sort of in that R1 category mm -hmm. of like, you know, getting your PhD, getting an R1 university appointment, you know, getting ten, going through the whole thing and getting yeah. grants and, and you just didn't want to do that. Yeah. Tell me what you did. <laughs> I mean, I, I was, I wanted to do research and I do still do research, but I just loved teaching. So when I got my master's, uh, I started co-teaching with a close friend and Tufts University has this experimental college, which came up in the 60s they developed it as a way to have things outside the regular curriculum uh -huh. you know in terms of women's rights movement and civil rights and uh you know, questions that weren't being asked in the regular curriculum and so anyone can apply to teach in that so graduate yeah. students can like journalists can and so we started teaching classes on um popular film and mental illness and then once i had my master's i started teaching stats and intro and wow. and i just I taught a lot and I just, that's what I loved yeah. the most yeah. was the teaching. When I think of Sarah Rose Cavanaugh, I think of teaching. Mm. I hope that's not. That's nice. I mean, it, yeah. Because I, 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 I really do. I mean, you have this um, presence on social media where mm -hmm. I know you mostly mm -hmm. um, that, that sort of emphasizes a lot of that. Yeah. And now you have this book. Can you tell me about the spark of learning a little bit? What's, yes. What, what sort of what inspired it and, and what's it about? My friend Jim Lang, who is uh, at Assumption College with me, and he's the director of our Center for Teaching Excellence, sort of all at the same time, uh, he asked me to be the associate director for grants and research in the Teaching Excellence Center. And he asked me if I was interested in writing a book in his series. So he was writing a teaching and learning series that he wanted slim, really accessible books on teaching that were informed by science. That he, sounds like a great series. Yeah. Yeah, mine was the first one that came out, but the people we have lined up, there's going to be some good books. Dang. He, I think he wanted me to write on service learning because he knew I had done some service learning courses. And I said, well, could I write about emotions? Because <laughs> I really love emotion. And he said, sure. It's essentially taking everything that we know from effective science and seeing those dynamics in the classroom. Yeah. And how we can use what we know about emotions to grab students' attention and to get them motivated and to help them remember and learn. So why emotion? Did you 
you had emotion interests in grad school? Yes. Yep. So I worked with Heather Uri uh, uh-huh. as a postdoc on emotion regulation, and we've continued collaborations since then. And so yeah. that's always been kind of my my bread and butter. And and when I worked with Lisa Shin, she studies post traumatic stress disorder to craft my thesis. And I was looking more at undergrads and emotion and attention. Right. So how does emotion facilitate learning? Well, uh, emotion facilitates learning, I believe, because it takes all these limited cognitive resources that students come into the classroom with. They have a lot of distractions. They have a phone buzzing in their pocket. They're concerns about their next calculus exam. And they draw on cognitive load theory and the fact that they only have you know so much attention, so much working memory, and that this is going to be siphoned off by just figuring out what you're asking of them, by changing their schemas and figuring out the learning process, and then by these distractors. Mm. And I think if you target emotions and your teaching style and in your assignments and in your assessments that you can get students interested and curious and motivated to take more of those cognitive resources and direct them to learning and away from these extraneous distractions. When you say target emotions, what do you mean exactly? I mean a couple different things. So I review a lot of literature on performance style of Mm -hmm. the teachers and I sometimes get some kickback uh, about this idea, but uh, when I reviewed a lot of the literature on learning, on uh, persuasion, on all sorts of different aspects of what happens in the classroom, what I saw again and again is that you know, how you present things matters, yeah. how engaging you are, uh, use of humor, right. eye contact gestures, uh, this whole class of things called immediacy cues that say, I'm here in the present moment with you. Ah, and I'm not. So that's interesting. I've never thought land. about that before. So one of the, one of the functions of these affective behaviors mm-hmm. is to signal that I'm all in right yep. now. So that's all the kind of performance aspects yeah. of, you know, managing your impression and, and being enthusiastic and energetic and, and at the front of the classroom. And not everyone's comfortable with that idea. Some people that I talk to, you know, feel like, you know, well, I'm a scholar and, you know, what's important is the, the ideas and, right, right, uh, right. and that emotions are a distraction. I've heard from people that like, uh, performing mm-hmm. cheapens yes. the activity that it's not, a, that I'm not performing. I'm, I'm providing a service. I'm, this is an important thing. We have to have gravity. Yep. And that comes from sometimes some very different people from the scholar people. So another resistance is, you know, well, it's inauthentic if it, I'm concerned about performance. Right. Right. But I, I try to look at more, not, not as performance, like acting, uh, but performance, such as caring about how you're delivering the message. So the message is very authentic and it's the message that you're trying to deliver, uh, but that there are these subtle behaviors that we know from effective science and we know from you know, social psychology that communicate to the students you know, that I am here with you. And right. that just by being aware of and managing those, I don't think that that necessarily is inauthentic. Does that mean there, there's more of a diversity of ways to be authentic and engaging? Yes. Then, then it might sound at first at first blush. Yes, yes. I think, you know, not everyone's going to be jumping around the front of the room. Right. And, you know, and I always get these questions when I lead faculty workshops. You know, what about the introverted professor? Who, yeah, you know, um, right. And I think that absolutely there are there are methods and you want to show your, your true self. And not everyone is going to have, you know, the same levels of exuberance. I remember reading somewhere about teachers that, there is this huge diversity in ways mm-hmm. that teachers can behave specifically. But the thing that good teachers tend to have in common is this 
authenticity, this sort yeah. of perceived immediacy. And I can even remember that from my own life mm -hmm. growing up. You can also target emotions with the kinds of assignments and uh, activities that you do in class. And there I review, uh, there's a researcher, Reinhard Peckrin, who has a whole theory of academic emotions and emotions in the classroom. And he says to choose things that have high control and high value. Let students feel autonomous and give them choice and uh -huh. say in their learning. Uh, and that that's going to motivate their performance and get them more interested. And then value being either personal value, such as self-relevance, you know, what is this, what is the relevance of this material for me? Right. Uh, or things like service learning, giving back to the world. You know, how is this going to help me in this Creating moment? purpose almost? Yes, uh, exactly. Huh. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Do you think that there are certain topics that just resist those kinds of things? So I think that, you know, there are some inherently less emotional, less interesting activities that we have to do in the classroom, but I think we can still choose frames that, that get students engaged. Yeah, yeah. There's um, Dan Shambliss, uh, who's out of Hamilton College, I believe. He wrote a book, How College Works, uh, uh -huh. and they studied their students like, for 10 years, uh, you know, out, and like what, what factors predicted them looking back and saying, yeah, I loved college and things like that. But what he found was that students choose their majors based on basically falling in love with the professor. That it's just, you, you know, he again and again heard all these stories of, oh, I was going to be an economics major. And then I took this English lit class wow. and I just, yeah. And so he has all these, all these pieces of advice for administrators. And he says, you know, if you want to increase retention, you know, don't build a new science center, just take your most charismatic professors, put them in the middle blocks of the day, because that's also how choose, students choose their classes, teaching intro courses. Wow. I've been thinking a lot about, and I, I just submitted an essay to Chronicle Vitae uh, about status and privilege and uh -huh. power oh, in, yeah. in the classroom. And I think that those student ratings, you know, there may be some of that variance is some people are not teaching well. Uh, but I think that there's also all of these natural status hierarchies and basically like the professor over everybody else. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we just hold so much power over them, over their grades, over whether they're going to get into graduate school, whether they're going to get a good job um, based on the strength of a recommendation letter. Uh, and they have like this one opportunity to express back some power and so, that's their one uh, oh yeah god i hate it <laughs> i hate the whole thing yeah can i just say i'm gonna put this out in the world mm -hmm. and i'm just gonna say it i cannot stand to grade people i like to give people feedback but the whole system of of assigning mm -hmm. grades and yeah. gpa and all that stuff i hate it yeah oh my god i hate it yeah yeah no it's the worst part of the job yeah i agree I mean, I, I, I do think feedback is helpful. Mm -hmm. and we know empirically that feedback is helpful, mm -hmm. especially when it's closer to the performance. Yeah. I mean, I think ways that we can make it slightly better, um, something I've over the years moved to more and more in my own teaching is way more frequent assessments that are smaller so that you're not <laughs> overwhelming yeah. your grading pile. Uh, but you know, these small assignments that build throughout the semester so that, yes, each individual grade that you give is fraught, but you're giving uh, feedback on it. And in the book, I review some literature on discrepancy and progress feedback and the fact that we almost always only give discrepancy feedback, that this is this is the deficit with what ah, you just did. With what you just did. But we need to give progress feedback. And, ah. you know, on this draft, you did this, but then you improved it over here, or I've seen this skill grow. And then, and then each individual 
thing feels yucky to the student when they get it back and they don't have an A, but they have so many opportunities to better that and so much more feedback that it, it takes away a little bit of that sting about the grading that I hate yeah. too. I think there's also a new development of these teaching professors, right? I have a friend who's in a position like this and it's uh -huh. tenure track teaching. And that's a so, very good idea. Yeah. And this is not an original idea, but you know, the skill sets and the likes and dislikes of like a research career and our one research career and a teaching career are not overlapping that much. Right. And so maybe we need, you know, researchers who don't do a lot of teaching and teachers who don't do a lot of research. I don't know. It seems that way. I've heard that said before. Mm -hmm. I would have to say that I would feel very sad if I did no teaching. Yeah. I enjoy teaching, mm -hmm. but I get it. In, in most cases, specializing is the right thing to do if you want to increase quality. But there could still be like lecture series or something like yeah. the research professors could give lecture series. I'm not saying we should take all the teaching away and that right. <laughs> from research professors, but I do think it's important that we that we start thinking about a lot of these questions of effective teaching, how to best engage students and best get them to the best heights of learning because they are paying a lot of money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know about assumption, but they certainly are at UVA. Yeah. So has this working on this book affected your own teaching? It was interesting. So I've learned, I've learned a lot and a lot of like tricks and things that I can pull into the classroom, which has been fun. The process of writing the book was discovering words for things that I was already doing. And that was, that was kind of neat. And just things about um, the, the framing thing that I was talking about before, you know, that I would often start a discussion uh, or something with posing it around some current controversy and like bring in like some really dynamic trailer of a documentary uh -huh. and like get them all riled up. I just kind of done that instinctively. Yeah. Uh, but then when I was putting together the ideas for the book, I was like, oh, yeah, this is like getting them energized and pumping up their autonomic nervous system. And then they're going to have more energy and uh, they're going to be more motivated. And then they're going to put more of those resources toward the task at hand instead of like, oh, uh, I'll throw this trailer. <laughs> interesting. I mean, teaching my big abnormal psychology class, I start every class with an NPR news story. Yep. And yeah, it does. It starts it out with like a prologue or mm -hmm. a preamble. Yep. And then the, we can go on with the class. And I've gotten really consistent feedback. The students absolutely love yeah. the NPR yeah. spots. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And puzzles and mysteries. I um, Some people... I know an art history teacher who starts every class uh, with like a YouTube video of a song. And, you know, oh, a song. Completely diverse, uh, you know, styles of music, you know, and decade and uh, genre. And there's just some clue in the, in the title of the song or the lyrics that has something to do with the topic of the day. Oh, that's And fun. so she had Taylor Swift's We're Never Getting Back Together. And then they were talking <laughs> about like the Protestant Reformation. And... <laughs> You know, it's a little bit of energy and emotion because it's music, uh, but they're also starting like puzzling out, starting yeah. like thinking and then thinking throughout the class. And at the end, they have to guess, you know, why that song, the storytelling and emotion. Yeah. When, when, when you say using emotion in the classroom, do you what are you referring to exactly? I address this up front in the first chapter or so of the book that uh, I'm going to say emotion, but I don't really mean emotion. I wanted the book to have the, the word effective science instead of emotion science, but the, you know, the publishers were like, no, no, nobody no knows, knows, nobody knows how to even say that. <laughs> yes. Um, but I get into the, you know, all of the controversies about what an emotion is, what counts as an emotion, are the basic emotion, the dimensional right. emotions, you know, things. Cause they talk about flow and interest uh -huh. and curiosity. And these are probably yeah. not emotions, but, well, they're but they're emotional, states. right? Yeah. I mean, this, they're, these are emotional mm -hmm. things, right? Yeah. And this is one of the things that I like Eddie Harmon Jones has started making this distinction. He's mm -hmm. like, I don't necessarily talk about emotions mm -hmm. per se or of any one class or type, but I talk about emotional processes. Yes. Yep. 
that's that's kind of the approach that I take. Yeah. Because yeah. things like curiosity, they're effectively tinged, you know, and it involves reward processing yeah. in the brain. And yes, we can talk about it as an emotional experience. I think that's great because it is true. When you, when you think about feeling curious mm-hmm. or feeling interested, we don't often think of emotion, but what in the hell else is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. the whole Damasio, or Damasio thing, yeah. the Descartes error yeah. thesis, right? That yeah. All this time we were thinking that there's cognition on the one hand and, and that's in bin A and yeah. there's emotion on, in bin B. That's how I started all my talks on the book. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Right? So, Damasio, yeah. Yeah, Damasio. So, yeah. so emotion is intertwined. Mm-hmm. Constant and continuous interaction. Constant and continuous that's interaction. Not, yeah, that's, it's Kiverstein, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And you can use one to slingshot sort of the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think they're the gears that like influence each other. And then we also have to turn down emotions sometimes, emotion regulation. So I talk about yeah. anxiety in and the And this classroom. is part of your yeah. research too, right? Yes. This is yeah. So- yes. Yeah. Um, so it, I talk about it in the book and focus a lot on anxiety because uh-huh. students, as you I'm sure are aware, are quite anxious yes. about Everything. Heather Uri and, and Jim Lang and Carl Fulweiler and Jeffrey Burke and I, uh, we have a grant from the Davis Education Foundation. Uh-huh. And we're testing out the idea if can we give students some tools from emotion regulation at the start of class and does it benefit their learning in that yeah. class or to the end of class? So we're using iPads and giving them some information from mindfulness and from emotion regulation, uh, cognitive reappraisal. And they do this little thing on the iPad, a little intervention, and then the teachers teach, and then they take a quiz. Uh-huh. And then we have all sorts of different control days where there's like no intervention, no quiz, or quiz and no intervention. Um, and we're curious to see if do, does giving students some tools to manage anxiety and frustration and boredom in the class, does that increase how they learn? Our hope is that the type of demand that we're going to be freeing up are distractions, that the that emotions, when they're completely non-relevant to what the student's doing in the in the moment, uh, when they're anxious about how they're going to perform, for instance, uh, that if we can turn down that anxiety, they'll be able to better able to direct their working memory toward learning. Yeah. I, I think also about vigilance, like threat mm-hmm. vigilance. I'm actually working on a paper right now with a dear friend and colleague uh, named Kathy McKnight, who has been looking all over the world at f- factors related to effective learning outcomes. Oh, great. And the number one is the relationship between the student and the teacher. Mm-hmm. Talk about emotional. Yep. If you have the, this great relationship, this mentorship type relationship with your teacher, and you know they're invested in you and your progress, and you feel invested in them and you want to do well and show them how well you can do, then you don't have to worry about threat as much because right. that they become that, that person. And we literally see that that frees up mm-hmm. activity in lateral prefrontal cortex right. where... I mean, come on, if you're talking cognition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's perfect. Jeez. <laughs> That's great. Yep. Yeah. I just read um, Christopher Emden's book for white folks who teach in the hood. He talks a lot about the barriers between developing those kinds of relationships yeah. if the students don't feel like you know them or that you get them. I think his lessons are broad broadly applicable uh, to developing relationships with your students and having the conversations and showing that you value their culture 
and he has this whole paradigm. He chooses four students um, to represent different kind of quadrants of the classroom demographically and brings them in as separate meetings with them with like music and food. Mm -hmm. And they get to decide some of the policies in the class. Some of the decisions that you'd make, some of the topics that you'll cover, some of the assignments, uh, they give him feedback from uh, the other students, what the other students are thinking. And then students cycle in and out over the semester. Huh. Uh, and so all of the students have a voice and <clears throat> can tell the professor what's going on. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Mm -hmm. I, mean, it sound, I mean, although I can recommend my friend's book to um, small teaching. Small you may have teaching? heard of it. No, uh, I haven't heard of that one either. This is awesome. Yeah, it's James Lang. But what it is is, just little tweaks that you can do based on cognitive science to better your teaching. Mm -hmm. So things that you can do in the first five minutes of class, in the last five minutes of class, teaching hacks. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's just like, here are some teeny little things that you can implement in the classroom tomorrow that oh, don't require I, I any like preparation. What is it called, small teaching? Small teaching. That's great. Yeah. Tell me about your research a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about uh, a lot of things with fiction reading, but about genre preferences in particular. And this is kind of ad hominem because I, I get really angry at people who are like lit fix snobs and the whole research is research. But it is really curious to me why some people are drawn to read like really dark, you know, apocalyptic horror. What is that doing for the person, yeah. you know, and that, and that forms an escape for them, you know, from reality. And it's almost serves an emotion regulatory function for me anyway. And mm -hmm. it's like you can shut off reality and go into this alternate world. But then there's whole other types of people who because reality is so painful they just want romantic comedies and 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 light and fluffy things so that they can relax and wow yeah what an interesting question yeah i wonder do you think do you think that there are emotional reasons that some are drawn to horror like i cannot read horror mm -hmm. i can't do it i can sometimes read like the the stephen king short stories yeah because they're funny mm -hmm. and because he's such an amazing writer yes I don't know. This is all speculative yeah. because <laughs> there's no research yet. But I think that there's, for me, some of that tension like that makes some people twisty and don't like it. Yeah. It's like I'm already twisty. And, <laughs> like and, it, it soothes you. Inside. Yes, because it's like, okay, you know, I always think there's a monster under the bed. And so here there is a monster under the bed and that's like reaffirming for me. Wow. But then the monster resolves, you know, and I think probably that. So it's that, a little psychodrama for you. Yes. And so it like untwists me because of that. Wow. Yeah. And there's a magic in writing that it's immersive and, and only some writers can do that, can yeah. like truly totally immerse you. Yeah. Hook you and bring you down into that world. Yeah. I think the the common theme here is mm -hmm. that there's this emotional component. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love this kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Well it's I think I, I see it as all related to to what you're talking about and researching too. You know, it's like the the overlap between self and other and social yeah. baseline. And uh and I think that when we read, we do that. You know, we like mind melds with this fictional other and when we teach we're we're trying to take like what we care about and what we know and merge our brains with the students brains and like give them what we know <laughs> uh, sarah thanks for coming in and talking Thank to you. me about all this stuff no it's a pleasure yeah. this is something i hear from people who maybe didn't have as easy of a time in like high school once they're adults and kind of get to learn on their own I hear a bunch of people who realize, wow, I was taught incorrectly. Not that they were taught incorrect information, but they realized that the teachers they had, at least in certain subjects, didn't know how to connect their own emotions as the instructor to 
what they were supposed to be cultivating in the students. Yeah. In my opinion, it's a real problem in contemporary pedagogy, you know, at, especially at the university. But gosh, if you go into high school and junior high school where kids are not sleeping well and they're concerned about relationships and it's just not easy to keep their attention on something. And I think what Sarah's found is what you don't want is just to like light off firecrackers you know, underneath their, their desk. That's not what she's talking about. She's talking about figuring out how to inspire a desire to learn. If the student is not engaged, I want you to figure out how to engage them. Your job every morning is to get up and figure out how to make what you teach inspiring. Right. I don't care what it is. You know, the tricky thing is that we, we're still early in the development of this kind of pedagogy. People like Sarah are going to lead the way. They're already She's already leading the way. But the exciting thing is that we have so much more to figure out. And we're increasingly given the sort of license to let the old factory model of kids sitting in chairs just doing what they're told for long periods of time evaluating them with silly exams that sort of defeat the purpose all of these things I think before long are going to be things of the past and I will not miss them. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I certainly hope so as a uh, burned out, gifted kid who did really well in, in public high school. Even for kids who do really well in that, that doesn't mean that their experience of learning is like positive or something they want to continue in that way. Absolutely. I was a terrible student. I hated school <laughs> until I started working with a few really gifted teachers mm-hmm. who let me deviate from the beaten path. The music of Circle of Willis was written and performed by Tom Stoffer and his band, The New Drakes. For more information on how to purchase their music on our website, visit circleofwillispodcast.com. You can also find all of our old episodes on the website. If you haven't already, subscribe to Circle of Willis wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more updates. Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world.